You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning to those listening this Saturday morning and anyone listening later on to our podcast. First up, I have to thank everyone who contributed to 3CR's online June Athon donation. We made exactly half our Radiothon total of $250,000. That is, we made $125,000 because of our wonderful listeners, you, and programmers. Of course, this just means we need to work hard to fill the financial gap over the next few months. But thank you for your contributions. Anyone who hasn't subscribed or donated, of course, you can do so anytime to keep the station broadcasting diverse and genuinely independent views. You might have noticed that during COVID, the media landscape has shrunk considerably in Australia, with over 100 rural and suburban papers having been closed. Papers like The Age going into the hands of Channel 9, whose chairman, Peter Costello, won't be unknown to our listeners. Uh, AAP News Service has been recently sold to a consortium. And... uh, the online news.com is now piecing its news together from automatic computer searches. So the ABC has lost more funding operating on funds that are around the same or below the 1980 funding model, uh, despite the PM saying in his most Trump-like way that there has been no cuts to the ABC in the best hard is soft, soft is hard moment of the year. Tell that to the 250 workers from the ABC who have just had forced redundancies dished out to them. In a strange tale of the modern world of the ABC, the ABC has just axed the position that coordinated disaster coverage, which was so effective during the bushfires. But apparently nothing to see here, according to Fluffy Head, at the head of uh, the Fluffy coalition government that we've got. Today we're kicking off and since there won't be any football except in the backyard it seems I feel I can own that phrase without competition. We'll kick off with the first online politics in the pub session given by Dr Margaret Beavis discussing Australia's need for an independent defence strategy. Very topical with the announcement that Australia wants to pour another $720 million into the industrial military complex's pocket and call it a defence strategy. It will apparently buy long-range missiles and increase cybersecurity because China is a big threat to us, that is, the US. 
some people just think it will put a target on on our foreheads, but you know who who are we to say so much for foreign affairs? We move to some films coming up on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, which started on Tuesday and runs online to July the fifteenth. Both talk about collectors. One, a working-class collector, Batman and Me, by Michael Wayne, and the other, a middle-class one, Dart, by Carl von Moller. Kevin wraps up the week, and Don Sutherland joins us to tell us about what's happening with the Life Livable Incomes for Everyone campaign. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Dr Margaret Beavers, the co-chair of ICANN, was the inaugural speaker for Politics in the Pub Online. She gave insights into Australia's defence strategy and where it could be improved if we actually focused on our national interest instead of America's. Here's what she had to say. Tonight I've been asked to talk about can Australia have an independent foreign policy. Um, I'm going to talk about a few things. I'm going to talk start with the current situation in Australia, our increasing militarism and the announcement uh, yesterday of a huge uh, purchases uh, just highlights how this is really a political hot topic at the moment and also something that's central to what we spend our money on and what our priorities are. I'm also going to speak a little bit about the ANZUS Treaty, about our worsening self-reliance, and also then about what measures we need to reclaim our sovereignty and to actually have an independent foreign policy. So here we go. Um, the uh, sorry, I'm just um, Anzac Day is a really big day in the Australian calendar, and it's transformed from when I was a child. You would go and listen quietly and pay your respects and support the, the the people walking past and acknowledge their loss and the loss that had been to the community. It's transformed over the years to become a really emotive day. A lot of rhetoric laced with sentimentality and nationalism. Tim Costello put it very nicely and he said it's become like a national footy team, something we can all support, we can all barrack for. But in fact, Anzac Day serves to not only set up an illusion that is impossible for Australia's soldiers currently to uphold, it's it's very depressing I think for some soldiers because it's totally unrealistic, but also by focusing on the individual soldiers, we distract from the questions about why we go to war And every time you go to war, you get all these stories about the soldiers and very little analysis of who has actually decided we're going to war. Whenever someone says we're going to war, it's really worth stepping back and thinking who's actually going to benefit out of this, um, be it politically, be it financially. Um, Similarly, the Anzac Centenary. The Anzac Centenary was an absolutely disgraceful um, waste of money, really. Australia spent... Uh, about 500 million, nearly 600 million, and also built a um, 
memorial in Villon-Bretonneux, which I'm not really saying properly, in France, was about $100 million. And this compares with the expenditure in Britain, which was about $110 million, so less than a fifth. Um, in Canada, which was much more appropriate, it was about $31 million, but in Australia it was a military extravaganza. Um, this money was not spent on veterans' mental health needs or their needs, and it certainly wasn't spent on the needs of the Australian community. Um, what's happened is that Anzac Day has been used by, and this is Bob Hawke going to the Gulf the first time, John Howard going to the Gulf, and Gillard. They used the uh, military, the popularity of Anzac Day to try and help make going to war a more justifiable thing. Currently, uh, the Australian War Memorial is trying to undergo a large expansion. It's proposed to spend nearly half a billion dollars. I think it's $498 million. So that has much enlarged halls so it can display helicopters and gunships and tanks. It is already a very successful museum and to spend another half a billion dollars to increase the display of military hardware just shows how powerful um, our military industrial complex is. It's worth noting that they even have a lecture theater that's sponsored by BAE Weapons Systems. So it's a bit revolting to have a memorial for the war dead sponsored by the weapons companies that profited from their death. This militarism also serves to normalize war as something that Australians do. We've also watched uh, immigration and customs morph from plain old immigrations and customs into this paramilitary border force. The government is heavily subsidizing weapons companies now, even though most of them are Australian branches of very wealthy multinationals. There's a $3.8 billion loan subsidy scheme. And in addition to that, there are uh, direct grants to companies, for instance, and a lot of these we don't know about. The one we do know about that did get some publicity was $38 million given to EOS Weapon Systems in Canberra. This company makes uh, gun emplacements that have rocket fires, rocket launchers and guns that can be placed on top of an armoured vehicle so that people don't have to stand outside the armoured vehicle to fight them. It can be fired remotely. That's somewhat revolting that $38 million of our taxpayers' money went to uh, a weapon system that was then exported to the US and then exported to Yemen, despite supposedly good arms control measures um, preventing Australia selling weapons to places where there are uh, human rights violations. The subsidising of the military uh, weapons manufacturer is justified as jobs, 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 jobs and growth. We've all heard it. This is a complete fallacy. If you actually look at the, the research, when you spend a billion dollars on a particular industry, if you spend it on health and education, both of those will get more than double the amount of jobs if you spend it on weapons manufacturer. And similarly, renewable energy, I think, is about 40%, so 140% increase, nearly half as many jobs again. So all these three areas, if the government is choosing to throw subsidies to create jobs, they're getting very poor value out of weapons manufacturer. What's also really um, insidious, and people I think are increasingly becoming aware of this, is the place of the weapons industry in education. As state education and certainly tertiary education gets increasingly starved of funds, the um, weapons companies have stepped in to offer prizes at secondary level and education systems, um, subsidies, and then at tertiary level, they, um, for instance, in Melbourne, but I know it happens in Sydney and many other universities, 
They have multi-million dollar partnerships where they sponsor and pay for scholarships for PhD students and then get the research. And this is really compromising, particularly in the Melbourne example, it's Lockheed Martin, which is the biggest weapons manufacturer in the world and very closely tied with nuclear weapons systems. I'm going to quote Dwight Eisenhower, who as president, when he left the Oval Office in 1961, sometimes politicians, when they leave the office, are uh, surprisingly honest. And a number of you will have heard this quote, but I think it's such an important quote. I apologise for the second hearing. He said, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And I think in all uh, um, thinking in terms of the alliance with the US uh, foreign policy, how we behave, I think you have to be very conscious that there's a very large, very well-resourced industrial machine that's pressing a lot of buttons. One of the buttons that's being pressed by the US has been to encourage Australia and in fact all US allies to spend 2% of GDP, gross domestic product, on the military. And in fact, Australia is likely to do that in the next financial year. This sounds pretty innocuous, 2% doesn't sound like much, but if you actually analyse it, the actual government income, so what we get back in tax that we can spend, is less than a quarter of um, GDP. And in fact, when you look at the defence budget for 2019-2020, it turns out that that's $37.4 billion, which actually equates to 7.4% of government income, which is a big chunk of when you think of we've got a, you know, a, lot, a limited number of places where we can spend our money and we need to get value out of that. I'm now going to move to talk about the ANZUS Treaty. And whilst I very strongly believe in Australia having an independent foreign policy, I'm actually surprisingly fond of the ANZUS Treaty. And I think if any of you haven't read it, go and read it. I'm going to just read you Article 1 and you'll understand why I'm fond of the ANZUS Treaty. Article 1, and firstly, also, there's a lot of guff talking about with the ANZUS Treaty about what it obliges Australia to do. If you actually look at what it obliges Australia to do, it obliges Australia to consult with the US and then either party can respond in alignment with their constitutional obligations. Now, whatever that means, nobody really seems to know. And a number of commentators have said that ANZUS, you know, ANZUS really could amount to just needing to write a stern letter. It's, it's, it's actually a very, um, it's, it's nowhere near as uh, enforced as the NATO treaties. But I'll just read you Article 1 of the ANZUS Treaty. The parties undertake as set forth in the Charter of the United Nations, to settle any international disputes in which they may be involved by peaceful means, in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered, and to refrain from their international relations from the threat or use of force in any manner inconsistent with the purpose of the United Nations. Now, if that isn't a really appealing piece of uh, writing, I think, uh, you have to, I think it's really surprising that the treaty that they brandish so much in times of war, it's often worth going back to them and saying, well, actually, have you read the ANZUS Treaty? If you actually do what the ANZUS Treaty says, this is, you're not, you're not um, doing what it says, you're just using it and you actually haven't ever read it. So I encourage any of you that are interested to go and have a look at it. So uh, the next topic I wanted to talk about was our worsening self-reliance, our worsening ability to defend ourselves. 
Some of you may have heard me talk about um, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, which are really um, designed. They're actually interesting. They're, they're designed to do what it says on the box. They're a joint strike fighter. They're designed to join with other countries to strike and fight. They're an attack plane designed to do that. They are not designed as a defence plane. Worse still, apart from all their major technical hitches, their huge expense and the vast delays that they've undergone. But in addition to all that, once they are up, up in the skies and they're actually working, they're not very agile. And they're actually, the US has admitted that they're designed to fly in conjunction with the F-22 Raptor planes. These planes are um, much faster and more agile. However, the US refuses to sell F-22 Raptors to us. So we are left with these planes that are designed to join in a US attack and ill-suited to our defense. Similarly, we have US troops in Darwin. Um, that's making us a target. It's making us very closely tied into the US military machine. At this time of coronavirus, I think it's absolutely appalling that these troops are coming through. Quarantine is not 100%. Um, testing is not 100%, and Northern Territory, which has fabulously managed to become virtually virus-free, it's virtually eliminated the virus, is home to some of the most vulnerable um, Indigenous communities. And if coronavirus got into those Indigenous communities, it would wipe out their elders because they have so many health issues. And it is just um, unconscionable that these troops are continuing to come in from America who's dealing so badly with the coronavirus. Um, I found out a few years ago that, in fact, we have a senior major general and other senior Australian military people in the chain of command in the Pacific. So the top person is a US person. The second person in command answering to the top person is an Australian. So we're actually enmeshed in the US chain of command. This means if the US decides to go to war, we're already in their fighting machine. The other uh, piece of astounding enmeshment is the fact that our oil reserves are in, the, in America. How on earth we think that in a, in a war situation, those oil reserves are going across the Pacific to come to us is just laughable and it's just another piece of tying us into the US war machine. Um, the US made, the US has been pushing Australia to have land-based um, long-range missiles for a long time. We refuse, which is good, but we're now with the announcement yesterday, we're going to have them and we're going to pay for them. Hopefully we have some sovereignty over them, but they are made by Lockheed Martin and I'm concerned that this again will tie us more to the uh, US military uh, decision-making process. Um, of big concern, and uh, as Romana mentioned in her introduction, Pine Gap is used to target drone strikes. It does um, mean that Australia is culpable in these stone strikes, which are effectively extrajudicial killings, where um, both people, suspects, have no due process, there's no court of law, there's no hearing, and also the um, people around those suspects. There have been many civilian deaths documented, and Australia is part of this. Um, also, with Pine Gap, when Australia was fighting in Iraq and was fighting in Afghanistan, a lot of that signals intelligence went through Pine Gap, Pine Gap is controlled by the Americans, and um, so our military missions were, in fact, under the control of the Americans by default. Um, Pine Gap is also used for nuclear weapons targeting, so that's a really serious um, issue that Australia needs to address. We do not want to be part of targeting for nuclear weapons. Um, it's also worth noting that Australia has trotted off to war. As Romana said, um, we've, we've followed the US off to war 
in every conflict since World War II. Um, if any of you haven't read it, Malcolm Fraser wrote a really excellent book before he died called Dangerous Allies. And one of the points he makes in Dangerous Allies is that uh, he was defence minister at the time he committed troops to go to Vietnam. And it was years later that he found out that the CIA knew that Vietnam was an unwinnable war, and yet it still asked Australia to join it. And he was very angry about that because about 500 Australians died and many more Australians were permanently damaged by going and being involved in the Vietnam War. Um, I think we can see building in the media momentum for a US-China conflict. In both China and the US, there are domestic pressures um, that will make conflict more likely. Donald Trump is increasingly making conflict with China one of the centerpieces of his re-election strategy. And it's interesting to watch um, Scott Morrison. I think there are sections in his party, the more right-wing news party, who are also pretty um, keen to ramp up the anti-China rhetoric and to um, really scare the Australian population. So finally, what do we actually need to do to achieve an independent foreign policy? I'm going to touch on a few things. Um, one thing I think is really sad is being the cuts to diplomacy and to foreign aid that we've seen over the last few years. <clears throat> um, diplomacy is the key to peace. It's not terribly exciting. You don't, if you prevent a conflict, you don't see very much, but it's hugely cost-effective and a really worthwhile investment. Um, we also need war powers reform. We need electoral reform and we need concrete measures to protect our sovereignty so that we establish strategic independence. Um, so with diplomacy, I'm just going to talk about this in a bit more detail. Um, we really need to encourage cooperative, respectful bilateral discussions. It doesn't mean we end our relationship with the US, nor does it mean we acquiesce to the Chinese behaviour in the South China Sea or with their behaviour in Xinjiang province. Um, but it does allow us to disagree with both of them. Um, we need to work with Asian nations. We need to work with middle powers like ourselves and form alliances so that we can speak out on important issues. Um, we should be doing everything we can to urge all players, especially the US and China, to uh, pull back from their um, really uh, increasing power projections in the Indo-Pacific um, and really try and instead build confidence-building measures. Um, in the South China Sea, dispute settlement mechanisms should be really being vigorously pursued and Australia should not be joining the US in their freedom of navigation operations. It should be encouraging the US to join the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea um, and because the US is not, despite all its huff and puff, is not even a signatory, let alone ratified. Um, Australia should be working hard to try and make the UN more constructive and more effective um, and just in general have a positive role in the region, region um, so that we can sort of um, work harder to maintain peace in the Western Pacific. In terms of reclaiming our own sovereignty, we need to stop troops coming to Darwin. Um, we need to renegotiate Pine Gap and our other bases to be in Australian control and acting in Australian interests. And that will be a long and hard fought battle because I think there are many complexities to Pine Gap. Um, and much secrecy, and it would be, it's, it's, it's going to be a long road, but I think that's something we need to focus on. 
And we also clearly need to get Australians out of the chain of command in the Pacific. And we also need to, when we're doing our military expenditure, to choose it for uh, weapons that are much more suited to Australian defence rather than to attack. So how do you achieve all this? I mean, it's, it's all very well to have a wish list, um, but underpinning all this, we really need domestic reforms and electoral reform would be really a very um, big step towards achieving sovereignty. We, we, you look at the electoral systems in places like New Zealand or Germany, where they have much greater representation of all parts of the community instead of a two-party system that's very dominated and gets very distorted. Um, I think it's really important in any war situation that we talk about the undue influence of the weapons industry. Um, we need to address that and there's ways to address that. And there's sort of half-hearted measures sort of being talked about in Canberra, which would be good, but they're being done very badly. For instance, lobbying. It came out earlier this week that the, the government's promises to keep a lobbying register, that Auditor General has been given a scathing report to say that they're not keeping a proper record of who is lobbying our parliamentarians. And really lobbying is very important because successful lobbying basically means that uh, vested interests triumph over public interest. Similarly, donations, more than half of the donations that are made in Australia are opaque. We need urgently need transparent, real-time donation reporting. In America, you know about donations within two weeks of them being given. In Australia, it can take up to 14, 18 months. It's, it's um, very poor and often these donations are hidden by the use of the foundations. We need a real ICAC, an effective ICAC, not the um, aesthetic model that's being proposed. Uh, there's a group of judges, I've forgotten their name right off the top of my head, there's a group of judges who've got together to talk about integrity and they made it very clear that the current proposal that the government's putting up is in fact worse than no proposal. The, the proposal the government's currently putting up so much shields public servants and shields politicians that it's worse than having no ICAC at all. Um, we need to look to New Zealand. In New Zealand, they have a Minister for Peace and Disarmament. In Australia, we have a Minister for the Defence Industry, in other words, a Minister to help with weapons manufacturer. And as I've said earlier, we need defence purchasing that actually focuses on defence. Finally, I think the war powers reform is terribly important. There's too many times that Australia has gone to war because it's politically convenient. Um, the current process rests with the Prime Minister and the Executive. Um, in the US and the UK and a number of other countries, both Houses of Parliament come together when war is contemplated. They debate what's happening, they debate what the information is, and then they vote. Andrew Wilkie, as you all know, the Tasmanian Independent MP, resigned over what poor quality intelligence there was for the Iraq War. And he was, of course, proved right in the end. So um, what I think we're really talking about is strategic independence. At the moment, we have strategic dependence and it's not strategic at all. We're very likely if the US declares war on China or vice versa to end up trotting and getting involved in the US-China war, which would be disastrous. Many other countries are allies of the US, but they don't trot off after every war. Um, we need to have Australians and Australia needs to have the final say on how we act in the interests of Australia. We need an independent foreign policy so we're not dragged yet again into yet another US war. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yarrow country. 
and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Melbourne's local documentary film festival is going online and nationwide from the 30th of June until the 15th of July. Canvassing an eclectic range of documentaries from South by Southwest, Slam Dance and Tribeca to Music, video games and true crime, with over 55% locally made in Melbourne and across Australia. Check it out at www.mdff.org.au. Prices start from $8 a stream. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Because I wear another hat on Thursdays where I look at Australian film and filmmakers on Showreel, I've had the chance to chat with different filmmakers who have their films in their Melbourne Documentary Film Festival this year. Documentaries are great because they explore things you often don't know anything about or are curious about, and generally they are full of interesting characters. What struck me about the two films I have grouped together for you this morning was that they said a lot about collecting, about identity, and interestingly enough about class, because the two different groups of people that are involved are clearly from different classes. I wonder if you think so too. Here goes. The first is a film by Michael Wayne called Batman and Me, and I did think it was pretty funny that his surname was Wayne. Well, the writers and I had experience as collectors when we were younger. I mean, we've all been there. We've all had big toy collections, especially when you're growing up in the 80s and the 90s, toys were everywhere and you and movies were marketed in such a way that you just had to get all the collectibles and you'd go to McDonald's and there were more collectibles for these things and they were just shoved in your face all the time. So we knew what that was like. Uh, and when I, when I found um, Darren's website and it was so strange to see someone who was showing off what they had, but at the same time, his little commentary that went with it was so self-deprecating. It was, um, look at all this stuff I've got. Isn't it just a waste of time? Look at all this plastic junk. But it's so strange to see someone who's not really proud of it, but he's still showing it off. It's, it's not, that's not normal. I got in touch with him and he was very receptive to the idea of doing a, a feature about his, about what he had. And, um, we just went from there. Yeah, it's interesting that you should say that because that dissonance, uh, part of the uh, interesting element of this film is that, one, he gives such uh, open access to himself. And uh, can you tell us me about that first, about the fact that he was so uh, able to expose himself? Well, I think that he had had a lot of experience in the sci-fi and fandom world um, showing off. I think that he was from a culture that loves to wear their interests on their sleeve. He's got he, one of the first things he did was show me this jacket he'd made, where it was just covered in patches of all of his favourite movies and and sci-fi shows. And he said he used to wear it around in public. And I thought I would never do something like that. But is it any different than to wearing a t-shirt with a Batman logo on it or? 
something like that. You, you you go out in public and you just can't help but let people know about what you what you're into. And this guy was doing it on another level. Yeah, yeah, but then it, it that's that's a perfect example of what you're talking about because it's about identity, isn't it? It is about identity, and and he he let us know that early on in that Australian sci-fi fandom world, it was a it was a world where they all had to have identities and he, they all had little nicknames and they'd, they'd interact with these nicknames and he was Darren to the world but in this little sci-fi world he was Dags and everyone knew him like that. He had to have a little hook. They all had to have hooks that um, set them apart and he and his friends were big into Star Wars and he's a very competitive guy. He knew he couldn't compete with their Star Wars collections so he did the next best thing because he knew that um, there'd be no competition from his friends. So it's it's uh, it's a very it, it has an element of uh, working class um, uh, self identification. It's true, isn't it? Because I mean, your film your film is really interesting because it uh, it de- delves into an individual, but it delves into class, it delves into identity. And it asks questions of the audience of their own uh, connection to self-expression. Well, how did you feel after you watched it? Did you feel like, oh, I used to collect this so I can understand? Or did it highlight anything for yourself? Well, I, I thought about some of those sort of elements. But it, uh, I always have been interested in objects, uh, particular types of objects. But I see them in a sort of an art sense. And then I get, uh, uh, then the practicality comes in, which is, ah, uh, you know, this is, uh, I don't, I don't identify with them as my identity because he crosses the line into these things give me power within my social grouping. Uh, what I have doesn't. It's more about art uh, and the interests and uh, marvelling at what other people have done. I see, I see some interests in the collection, don't get me wrong, uh, I, and I think that the uh, compulsion to collect is really fascinating, uh, but uh, this is something else. This is about... One of his friend was very interesting because I've observed this too. He said, we're no different from people who are really into uh, footy cards or uh, know all the statistics of the... Um, uh, the cricketers, and I noticed that about boys, they need to have something. Uh, if they're feeling inadequate, they have to come up with the, boy society. And I'm jumping to conclusions because I'm not a boy. Uh, a boy society requires you to be good at something, uh, and uh, being able to remember all the names of the cricket captains or how long someone, you know, all that shit. Um, which is incredibly tedious, but it gives uh, admiration from their peers. Incredibly tedious. And what what I found strange about Darren was that he wasn't filling us up with this kind of um, inane trivia about Batman. He, he knew almost nothing about Batman when, when pressed. I thought, why? But you, you've dedicated your life to creating this room full of Batman merchandise, and yet you can't tell me the first thing about the character. Uh, I found that to be unusual as well. Every every time he he at one point he sold us. Um, I like to do the opposite of what people expected me, and I thought, what a thing to say! Like, what what? How would you regard yourself that strongly that you have any thought about that whatsoever? 
But it was true. Every time we thought that he would know about this, he wouldn't, or he, we didn't think he'd have any interest in another thing, he'd know everything about it. It was a very, very complex. The complexity that was there in the website was definitely there in the man himself, and hopefully it's there in the film. Well, it is, because uh, I happened to know about the Dark Knight series of Batman, because we collected it, and it was because it was such a departure from the uh, cultural uh, display of Batman previous. It's very dark, and it's uh, quite... Uh, um, emotional and is telling you something about the uh, schizophrenia of Western civilization. I mean, on a, in a potted way, right? I'll tell you that. So actually, Dark Knight is much more significant than he appears to understand. I think so. And I think that his, even though his choice of Batman was, was predicated on the fact that it was the popular thing at the time, I do think it was interesting that he chose it and not, say, Superman or any of the other... I mean, now we've got so many options for superheroes, but it was Batman, Batman, a character who likes to keep things secret and has a hidden room in his house where he goes to uh, be Batman. This is is what this guy's done with his own stuff subconsciously, I think. I don't think it occurred to him that there's a lot of Batman's secretive nature in what he was doing and he was sort of trying to hide what he had done from people who would come to his house and he would really only show it off if he was if he was pushed to to give that to him. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the elements that's so interesting. But also the shape. He's actually a bit of an artist too. As you say, he's a filmmaker. But it's like he's, he refuses to accept elements of himself. That, that uh, sequence where he talks about the shape of the character in that clip with the big, dark uh, shape of Batman coming out. That, that's really significant uh, because that, the iconography of that Batman series was actually quite compelling on an artistic level, emotional level. So he's keying into a whole lot of elements of himself, which is fascinating. And the other thing about it was the business about the two fellows having being slightly... Um, uh, what do you call it? What's the word... Um, uh, self-effacing, I suppose, but a bit nervous about uh, mentioning the fact that they came from... <coughs> well, his friend came from a single mother family and he and uh, Dags came from a family that was, he called it working class, not much money type of thing. Uh, it, it was almost as if they had to explain themselves on... There's a lot going on in your film, that's what I'm saying. It's a really fascinating exploration of a subculture uh and also the other bit that you decided to put in which is the ones where people go to the fan you bring it to fandom in general and this thing where people seem to be floating on the uh the surface of commercialism you know like on a lifeboat and they have to work out think something to buy something to buy and and it's it's a way for people who feel like they've got no other way to be a part of these things they enjoy. To be a part of it, they can go and buy a piece of it and that somehow that gets them closer to their interests. And in, I suppose in a way it does. Um, it, it, if you go and buy the official Batman Halloween costume, you can be Batman to an extent. Um, some people obviously take it a bit further, but I've never been... I, I, still, I, I just wanted to, in the film, make sure that 
there was a contrast between Darren, who hated what he had done and just had this sort of self self loathing about his collection, with people who actually did it and enjoyed it thoroughly and unashamedly. They, they, at the end, we we uh, speak to a bunch of people at uh, Collectors Fair, and we were surprised by what these people would come out with um, with what they collected. They were just people. People will collect anything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I can understand the collector, the uh, you know the value. They're they're placing value on it. It's a it's a personal sort of artistic uh, approach to the world. Uh, the dress up thing is another thing altogether, because that means that you're actually becoming becoming. But um, before I let you go, I, I did at the end of it. I was wondering how. Darren reacted to the film. Well, Darren uh, enjoyed it, and he he didn't see it immediately. I, he only um, saw it a few weeks ago. Actually, I showed it to him for the first time then, and he'd forgotten a lot of what he told us. He he said so. It was all a bit of a surprise to him when he finally saw it. But he said that the overall message of the film matched his own thoughts of collecting, having come out the other side of it, which I was pleased about because um we didn't want to misrepresent him but we wanted to be truthful in telling his story and he didn't he um it must have been surreal to see your life played out with action figures and and in in such a strange and colorful way and to have your to have your choices life choices analyzed so so deeply by um, by filmmakers, but I will always be grateful to him that he that he could put that time aside and to to open up like that to us, and um, and then be happy about the end result to to feel that the message he wanted to get across had gotten across. A bit like the Joker, actually, he's a bit of an egomaniac. Yeah, you wouldn't. Um, he's certainly not the shy retiring type, but. He's, it just it just makes you think about what else is out there when you go through the suburbs and you go past these normal looking houses. You just think, well, who's here and what are they doing? It's a bit like Blue Velvet in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see what the next project is going to be, and I'm glad it's on at the uh, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival because it's actually incredibly interesting film. Well, me too. I'm I'm glad audiences can finally see it. We've been working on it for five years. <laughs> um, we interviewed him several times over five years. I'm just happy that people can finally see it because we, what we've gotten a lot out of is when people watch it and they reflect on themselves. I think that there's, even though we're going quite deep into Darren's life, we want people to come away from it thinking about their own choices. And even if they're not into collecting at all, like a lot of our crew were not, um, it's still, it's still something about Darren's experience and journey that um, that speaks to a lot of what we do every day, and especially in such a consumer society. Yeah, I think so. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I definitely thought about it too, and it came back into my mind after I'd seen it a couple of days later. So it gives you lots of things to think about. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, we wanted to do to a movie that would leave people with with something to think about. We didn't want it to sort of be over and done with and all that wrapped up nicely. No, I don't think there's I don't think there's ever gonna be a wrap up for Darren. I think it's something he's gonna have to live with for the rest of his days. I think so too. And I wonder if he ever thought that it was gonna be 
something that was going to do that for him. Uh, well, there's, there's several things going on there. You see, there's he lives his life. One of the things that's so admirable about him is that he lives his life and actually engages and does things to the best of his ability. Secondly, he actually is quite a joyful person. He enjoys things, you know, like he's funny. He That that sequence with the um, film, filmmaking, with the all the people being him, playing all the parts, that was pretty revealing. That made me laugh out loud. That was really funny. And uh, also the other thing about it is that there's depths that he refuses, the doors that he refuses to go through. So he's, um, like all humans, he's a com- complex being, but he likes to uh, skate on the surface, which is, you know, something that uh, uh, people do to avoid any of the bogey people. I think that with his films too, he he sent them to me early on he, he, as a way to say, yeah, I've moved on from the collecting. This is what I'm about now. And he was very proud to show me his films. Um, and to me, as I watched them, I thought it just sticks out to me so much that there are so many elements of that collecting life, the collecting thought processes in that in those films that he made. And I don't think the films were seen by many. I don't think it were, they were um, the festival success. Um, that he perhaps had hoped for. But they were fascinating in that they really did. When you've, when you've lived your, when you've spent a huge part of your life obsessively collecting something and then you just stop and you move on to something else, you can't, you have to expect that there'll be some sort of crossover. And I, I feel like there was, and it was great that he was able to let us use parts of his films in ours to, to show that. I don't think even he realised that it was happening, but it was there. Well, that's what I mean. He, he, he's, uh, he's like a... Um, well, yeah, that, he, he's in process of living his life. It's, it's quite amazing. Um, well, I'll throw the question back to you. Uh, what did you think? How did it affect you? Well, it made me feel... When I first found his website, it was because I was looking up old Batman stuff I'd had when I was a kid, and I thought, oh, I'll just see what I can find, and there it all came up, and as soon as I saw the pictures, I got that hit, that creepy dopamine nostalgic yeah, hit. that a familiarity. Um, we're, so, we're treated to so often these days. I mean, you can go to any um, any pub these days, might have an arcade machine or a pinball machine, and you might see that and think, oh, yeah, I remember when I was a kid and I saw those. We're just treated to that kind of nostalgia all the time now in a... Commercial way. I don't think it's an entirely pleasant way. Yeah, I think it's. I think there are quite sinister connotations to it. But I was getting that from his website. But when I actually went to the room itself and stood amongst it all, the pointlessness of it was overwhelming. <laughs> thought, all this stuff is just sitting here unused. Uh, never... Like, my, as we were making it, my um, filmmaking partner said to me it's like he's st- like stolen experiences from the hands of children like he, these kids ki- there were kids out there that never got to play with these toys because this guy bought them and locked them up in this prison in here <laughs> uh, true like there were, every one of these toys that i could look at and go oh that i had a lot of fun playing that there's some kid out there who couldn't say that because this guy had had monopolized these things. yeah 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 I'll, I'll tell you something i think it's a it's a it's a funny it's Mm. No, I'll I tell you something, Free, because I'm older uh, and I came from a very large family. We never had, uh, uh, we made our own fun, you know, stones, dirt, 
pots and pans and climbing and all the other types of things that you do when you invent things out of wood. Uh, we had, I can name two things that we had that were actual bought items, you know, uh, that were toys. So toys to me are objects of um, art. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're not things that you actually ever had. You know, they always were part of the commercial world. So um, I find this really... I don't have the intimacy that people have, like, with uh, their Barbie doll or any of that sort of stuff, which is... Uh, so this is even more fascinating to me. You know, this thing about co commercialising natural human emotion. Yeah, well, I think that Star Wars was the first to sort of do that. They, they could turn every character in those films into toys and the process got more and more refined as as the 80s and the 90s progressed and it was by the time that batman films had come out you're able to get sort of almost exact likenesses of these movie characters in the palm of your hand and while we to play in the playground where we would be the characters running around it was that's sort of what we attempt in the film is um is to represent our characters as toys, because I think that that's the kind of simplicity that um, that a story like that lends itself to quite well. But at the same time, there's so much more going on there. And these toys are just... Um, these toys are... They, they have to carry so much. When a kid plays with a toy, there's so much that a kid can put into that toy. The toy becomes an avatar for the, the kid's imagination. And I think that that applied quite well to um, to Darren's story where all these toys he had in his room were an extension of his own imagination and ego and identity. And as a friend of mine put it quite well, he said, I love that you've told the story of a man who wouldn't take toys out of the packet by taking toys out of the packet. <laughs> yeah, well put. Yeah. This is Annie and you are listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Our second chat about collectors is with Carl von Moller and artist Robert Clinch. This film is called Dart, that is D-apostrophe-A-R-T, tongue-in-cheek, quite clearly. All right, let's start with you, Carl. How did you get roped into the Dart project? <laughs> um, that question came up a few times already and I've got to say it's always one I, I have to smile on because um, I just got a phone call to come down and have a look at um, Robert's studio and discuss how they were going to produce an, an art car using a Gogamobile dart car as the canvas and uh, because two grown men don't often call me up and say come on have a look at my paper planes painted on a gogomobile dark car i did find this rather intriguing a bit of a fun fun idea yeah so look um the, the two um, rob robert clinch and jeff brown the collector and the uh, i guess he's a collector of art and cars um, knew each other from from the past because robert was actually represented by his father dr joseph brown who who was actually an amazing individual. He was a, a, a very big collector of art himself, um, but also uh, uh, he represented artists, um, including Robert Clinch. So there was this uh, very nice tie-in with um, this this uh, this family. Um, Dr. Ro Joseph Brown ended up uh, donating his collection of art to the NGV, which was one of the largest uh, personal art collections ever donated. And um, 
is a, an amazing thing to go and see in itself. Initially, I didn't think this was going to be a documentary. It was really, I was brought on board really as a, um, I guess, someone to cover the, the, the making of the art car. And it was going to, this film that I was going to produce was going to be a short thing, uh, which would be, which, which would go along with the car in various art galleries, wherever the car would go. Um, but as I was sort of getting into it, I needed to, as a filmmaker, I always sort of like to probe a little bit deeper and try and, you know, find why these people were doing this and, and, and maybe broaden the, 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 the understanding of the art itself. And that, meant that I interviewed both Jeff and Robert extensively. And during that time, I discovered about the the Joseph Brown art collection and its significance to Australian art. Um, and, uh, and of course, about Robert's work, it, it's himself. I mean, he's an incredible artist who um, paints in a very modern style. And uh, it, his work just literally blew me away. So those things really attracted me straight away to the possibility of this being more than just um, a, a just a simple art gallery video. And over the, a number of weeks, as I sort of followed the project along, I suddenly realised that this really, to, to tell the full story, needed, I guess, the voices of all the different elements that made up that story, which also included the car's designer, an Australian, a guy called Bill Buckle, who uh, incredibly was still around when I when we were... Filming and he's still around today. Actually, he's a he's a very uh, sprightly ninety three year old now. I think, uh, but he agreed to come down from Sydney to be interviewed to be part of the the film, as well as um, Tommy Dysart and Joan Brockenshire, who were very much principals in making the Gogo Mobile brand uh, famous in Australia in a series of ads they made in the nineties uh, for Yellow Pages. So, yeah, all of those elements sort of just help make, you know, a, a more complete story for me. And, and yes, it, it, it is complex, but I think it's eclectic more than complex. It's, it, it's tapestry or layers of, of stories that sort of come together in this one project and it's firmly rooted in the art car project. So it's your fault that uh, this project happened at all? <laughs> it is my fault indeed. Uh, look, I probably would have loved to have painted a, an art car in a, um, the, the early 80s when the um, famous BMW art cars were happening and you know, a couple of Australians were commissioned alongside people like Jeff Coons and Andy Warhol, so they were in good company. And it was a fun idea. I, I love cars in my youth. I'm a reformed petrol head now. I, I'd rather have a, uh, something that was running from the sun. But anyway, um, the... Um, the idea um, appealed to me at a time when I was doing some sign writing on a good friend's stock car, a racing car, and I said to Johnny Halls, can I just paint the whole car? And he said, listen, mate, just do the names and numbers. <laughs> and so it was 40 years later that finally this opportunity came along, largely because of this um, very well-known story from the Yellow Pages ad uh, where Tommy Dysart over the phone goes G-O, G-G-O, trying to buy the parts for his um, obscure little sports car. And it wasn't the Dart, though. But he, the fact that he said not the Dart in the ad, the Dart name was entrenched in the minds of all of us from that ad. But 
Oh, uh, another thing that had occurred um, in the in the interim was that I'd started using paper darts in paintings of mine as a motif to represent imagination. So my urban landscapes often involved a little vignette where there'd be some story being told, and on a number of occasions I'd used paper darts. So the play on words, the combination of the dart car and the paper darts, and the idea of spelling darts, the apostrophe A-R-T, as in of art, um, was a multifoliate way of um, having a bit of fun. Now that you've introduced the idea of art, uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the idea of art and collectors and ego? Art and collectors and ego? Yep. Fascinating. Uh, <laughs> dangerous territory. Uh, <laughs> look, the... Um, the, the connection with Jeff was because his father, Joseph Brown, as um, Carl has mentioned, was my art dealer. Now, Joe was a maverick in the art world. He was the, the doyon of Australian uh, commercial art dealers, um, and I was very fortunate to have him as my representative. And um, he put together, over his lifetime, a considerable collection of Australian art. There's a book you can buy called Outlines of Australian Art that uses his collection to illustrate the history of Australian art. That's how comprehensive it was. That collection was donated to the National Gallery of Victoria, $30 million worth of art. Um, very, very generous man, wanted it to be handed over to and enjoyed by the people. Um, and Joe and I became very good friends. He started as my art dealer, became my mentor and eventually a good friend. As a result, I met members of his family, Jeff, who's closer to my age. And Jeff and I shared the inherited passion he had from his father for art, but also an interest in cars and racing cars at that stage. Um, and so uh, because we knew each other, um, this occurrence happened one night where we'd possibly have one or two too many red wines and we thought it would be a very funny idea to make an art car using my paper darts on a Gogglemobile dart and um, I thought he was choking and forgot about this and then three years later um, I went to pick up a picture from him that he was lending from his collection to go to a fairly major survey of exhibition, uh, exhibition of my work being held in Poland and um, he said, look, before you go, I've got some good news and some bad news. And I'm thinking, oh, crikey, he's going to want this picture back before the show's over. And that's going to get lost in translation. I don't want these complications, you know. And I said, well, you better tell me the good news first. And he said, I bought a Gokomobile Dart. And suddenly this flicker of this memory comes back to me. And I said, well, what's the bad news? And he said, well, you're going to have to paint it. And there we go. And the rest was history. The rest is history. But his collection, he has a a very fine collection of art, but he also collects um, cars, meaning he's got a handful of um, Australian-made um, mm. sports cars, and this is now part of that collection. Yeah, just to, regarding mm. the, the the question, I guess, to ego, I, I, I find that fascinating as well. It's interesting why people collect. It's, it's unusual. For some, it's about, uh, I guess, maintaining history and keeping an element of that alive. Uh, for others, it might be to, I guess, feather the nest and kind of understand, you know, ownership is everything. Um, but in this case, I think that the dark car represents another Australian-designed uh, thing. And given um, Joseph Brown's big collection was very much a, an Australian art, art collection, it did tie in very nicely with Jeff Brown's own 
world collecting, which was all about engineering and art together. And this sort of combined those two things into one thing, which is why I thought this would make it a very interesting documentary because engineering and art are often kept separate. And, and it's very rare to bring in, have these two things come together like this. And Kyle saw the parallels in a number of the protagonists in this documentary's lives, that there was this influence from left and right side of the brain, the mm. engineering and the art simultaneously. Um, so it, it, it's part of um, Bill Buckle's world, it's part of Jeff Brown's world, it's part of my world. My father was an engineer. Um, and so this connectedness, it's a bit like the show that was put on by the NGV about that included design and all sorts of things, so that artistic um, inclinations and creativity and engineering and construction aren't necessarily um, opposites. They can be counterpoints of the same thing. Which is why also I think it made a great sense to have, have that in the film. This is why it is a complicated, layered story. It's very difficult to just tell the simple nuts and bolts of how the car became an art car uh, without going into the whys and whats. It's, it just made sense to bring these things together so that you get a deeper understanding of uh, the, the sort of the underlying forces that were making this project come together. It was also very interesting to have from both sides talking. So there are people from the car side, there are people from the art side, and there's some sort of pretty qualified people there that Carl's been able to get together to tell this story. A weak solidarity, Brecky came listening and went, oh, I'm a bit breathless. I, I've just rushed in from spending another hour digging a bunker in the backyard for when the bombs start dropping and cruel, heartless, occupying trained killers maraud our streets, or occupy our city. What a killer's all. I, I'm trying to do an hour or two each day. After the government said it could not afford to provide the ever-growing unemployed with a livable income. The country can't afford to support dole bludgers. Big Supremo scuttled them more or less unpronounced. When we have to support the US of the UN of the US of the world merchants of death, have to show the US of that we are prepared to pull our weight in ensuring the US of rules the waves and the air and the land. A reliable acolyte. Reassurance cheap at half the price. Uh, you mean $135 billion. No, $270 billion. But that's the full price, not half the price. Well, well, until the price rises, as it always does, but therefore it's not cheap at the full price. Cheap at the price. You say we face the greatest threat since Hitler. Who is this enemy, this Hitler, we're supporting the US of to train kill? For security reasons, I can't tell you it's evil China, because for economic reasons, I don't wish to upset evil China. No, no, let me rephrase that. For economic reasons, I don't wish to upset good trading partner, good China. So China is the enemy. That was just an example. Oh, and exciting news. Well, as exciting as this cheap $270 billion on train killing for the US of merchants of death, our fence-trained killing department and foreign affairs will be transferred permanently to new headquarters. Oh, where will that be? We have been ordered to, or no, no, have obtained a nice little office out the back of the US of Embassy at very reasonable rent. It will add a whole new exciting layer of, layer of efficiency to receiving our orders. Oh, and back to, uh, beside we can't afford to support dole bludgers anyway, for then they just go on dole bludging and don't get on with the meaning of life. 
on which education to be a wage slave minister Dan Teachens to be a wage slave's new wage slave policy. Imposing massive costs if a student actually wants to be educated has to get through the Senate before the country can train all these people to enjoy the meaning of life in the daily grind. Which led one of the more shining products of True Blue Aussie education, one notions that appalling Hoonsun, leaving no doubt where she stands, telling us, I've done all right in politics without a uni degree. Well, that last bit was totally unnecessary, and she's certainly been all right and nothing but all right in politics. I see little value in arts degrees because graduates get no decent jobs. I don't think we need more people doing gender studies. People with degrees in politics don't know what the average person wants. Um, always good to get that appalling educated opinion. She keeps striving for that feminist solidarity of the year award, doesn't she? And another very good reason for making humanities a pariah in pedagogy is that students might start thinking slashing education funding while spending a cheap 270 bill on trained killing to thwart the emerging Hitler is at least a, a touch questionable. Remember when former big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull launched his great contribution to renewable energy, the Snowy 2 scheme, making water run uphill, as his future was heading downhill, while his successor was waving a lump of beautiful coal in Parliament and baiting the Socialist Party, telling the country how wonderful and healthy and good for the country, as in good for the economy, same thing, was beautiful coal. Well, this week, Mr. Beautiful Coal was boasting of his renewable credentials, which, to be fair, isn't much to boast about, but it would at least think he'd have the decency to shut up, as he launched the Snowy 2 scheme yet again. Why again, I thought. Malcolm's done that. Why, this week. If I'd been there, I could have asked the caring business class party candidate for today's Eden Monero by-election, standing beside Scuttlebem nodding obediently. Not a sign of a lump of beautiful coal, just a few pointed attacks on the Socialist Party. So we've got no idea why he picked this week to relaunch what had already been launched. Meanwhile, the Federal Chief Medical Officer told the ABC the government's response to COVID-19 had, quote, been led by the science. Scuttle them, we ask, scuttle them. Does this mean your energy policy, your climate change, if there is such a thing as, will in future be led by the science? I bet you're from 3CR. Typical left-wing commie question. Look, there is proven science like medicine and unproven science like climate science, if it can even be called science, where clearly there are reputable scientists who assert it is unproven. And you can research their scientific proof of unproof by reading that highly respected science journalist and expert, Andrew Bolt through the head, who regularly quotes both of them. Uh, but no more about unproven climate change. I've got to go. Here in Eden Monero, I've got to visit victims of the shocking bushfires. Oh, and check out the local train killing merchants of death industry. Those who comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy know governments and the community can save heaps by privatising any government activity that turns over a neat little profit and by contracting out government services to the super-efficient private sector.
like, say, contracting out the security of quarantine hotels to private corporations. Massive savings like closing down 36 suburbs and banning Victorians going anywhere but Victoria as big a pariah as humanities. And so respecting the social distancing they were policing by sexually harassing and propositioning guests. Another fine example of the huge social benefits of neoliberalism. And of course, the airline that used to be our airline, privatised to benefit from the super-efficiency of the private sector, because the then Socialist Party government said government couldn't afford to keep it, showed its efficiency during COVID-19 by thus far extracting almost $1 billion from the public purse, which couldn't afford to keep it. And thanking the public for its largesse by restricting sackings, or sorry, sadly having to let goings, to as few as six or so thousand people, one of whom is thankfully not its super-efficient private sector big supremo, Alan Joystick. Interesting, nearly one billion flicked to the airline that used to be, from COVID day one, one company, and slightly belatedly, last week, one quarter of that, 250 mil, for all artists and artistic endeavours in the whole country, after they have been starving since day one, showing the danger government has come to recognise in the humanities generally. Good news in aviation, the new owner of the other airline thinks it will only have to sadly let go about 5,000 workers, flicking them to bludge on the public purse. On that point about Victoria being a pariah, thanks to the super-efficiency of private security companies, we asked State Big Supremo, the pejorative Dan, what he thought of the 270-bill train-killing spend and who he saw as the big enemy. There's no doubt, he said, New South Wales. New South Wales is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the GST by leading the campaign to increase the rate and get rid of the exemptions like fresh food. Although I'm not sure those advocating broadening the bases, they say, would support removing private school education, for instance, that would be discriminatory. New South Wales reports it's so low it forces federal and state governments to resort to more damaging taxes on income, business and property transactions. Oh dear, I hadn't realised it was that bad. One supporter said the GST was a progressive tax, but didn't quite explain how the poorest of the poor and the filthy richest of the filthy rich paying tax at the same rate was progressive. But one expert, former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, proffered, our GST is too low and too porous and company taxes are too high. And we certainly have to respect his opinion, although his company tax reference might help explain what it's all about. And former Treasury head Ken Henry said, political leaders have to make the case in language that resonates with voters to increase and expand, make the poorest of the poor realise they're better off paying more for everything except their kids' and grandkids' private school education. And they even dredged up former Democrats' leader Meg Lees, I'd forgotten she ever existed, who did a deal when she could have defeated it, telling us, all the work we did has had a successful result. About as successful as the result for her, seeking her career and taking her party down with her into the lees. Finally, on telly the other night, this 
sorry, a copper, asked what was the main asset the job needed, said, like common sense, which explains quite a lot. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're going out with a chat with Solidarity Breakfast regular Don Sutherland, a long-time activist and unionist, who has hooked up with the newest activist coalition calling for a living income for everyone. Well, uh, I think the... The Living Incomes for Everyone campaign is a very promising development. It's showing a lot of vibrancy at the moment and people are responding positively to it, but it has a long way to go. Firstly, it's an opportunity for people who have every right to complain about what is being done to their lives by the system and the management of the system. So we go back before COVID-19 and all those people who were living in poverty then or being pushed into very low incomes so that they were floating on the edge of poverty, they have every right to be complaining. But what the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign does is say, let's also, beyond complaining, start struggling for something that's better. The second thing it does is it brings into the struggle and connects working people who are led in an organising sense, by unions and at the peak level by the Australian Council of Trade Unions, but working people who are not necessarily members of unions or are active in unions are able to join together with people who are very active in all sorts of big and small welfare organisations. So we think, for example, about the Council for the Single Mother and Her Child uh, as an example, the small and vibrant organisations, articulate organisations, who have been dealing with the punitive, semi-fascist character of the management of ben- welfare benefits, especially the cashless card. And when you say that, uh, it's quite clear that uh, it's, it's um, focused on disrespecting those people and making them constantly jump through hoops, but also to make them feel as if they're uh, unworthy people. Yes, that's very important. Its ideology is to convince those people that they are in some way deficient. Whereas this campaign says, no, 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 you're not deficient at all. It's the system that's deficient. And this is a campaign for you to express your potentiality as people, as human beings joining together with others who are in very similar circumstances but with different details, joining together with them to get something that's much better. Uh, And the third element, of course, is unemployed workers who may or may not be members of the Unemployed Workers Union. So you bring together working people, people who are in jobs with working people who are not, and other people who, who are not, who ultimately would like to be able to live their lives on a basis of an earned wage but can't do so because of disability or for some other reason or because the system just cannot provide them with a job, even though there's plenty of work to do. All of those parts of the working class, to use an old-fashioned expression but one that's still just as real, are able to come together in the life campaign. I think they're the two big, it's a big deal to see whether we can make this campaign work. Uh, I have got involved, so I do talk with you on the basis of some involvement. And um, 
uh, I'm really enjoying the experience as a veteran activist of working with young activists, with people that I would not normally work with in those welfare-type organisations who are outstanding and articulate representatives of the people who are at their constituents. What would you say to uh, people who uh, might uh, fall into the ideological camp of SCOMO because he has this capacity to govern by gossip? Oh, how, why should these people expect to uh, get a free ride? What, what, how, well, how is the campaign dealing with that? Because I well, understand it as being a human right. And many of our listeners will too. But this is a campaign. Mm. Well, I like your expression, um, uh, uh, scummo uh, governing with gossip. Uh, and, and, of course, what you're talking about there is him airing the view that uh, the current job seeker rate of $550 a week is way too high because it means that people who are on that rate won't want to go and get a paid job. Right? Well, that tells now, you something about the minimum wage more than anything. It, 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 and we can come back to the minimum wage in a minute. So, how, do, as you say, what does the gossip thing come from? Well, you're spot on. It's a great expression. He actually says that the scientific basis for the claim that he's making is that he's had conversations with a few employers. Uh, so there's the gossip, governing with gossip. Now, what's he really on about there? What he's on about is testing the water to see how much the population will give him permission to cut the job seeker rate back to something far less than what it is. He is hoping to get consent from the majority of the population. And, of course, the way in which Liberal National Party governments and also some people in Labor Party governments have done that is to evoke the dole bludger mythology. And that's necessary because it seeks to persuade those people that they are unworthy, that they are less human than the rest of us. And then secondly, it, it, those, it tries to persuade those in work that the biggest threat to the fact that they're being in work is uh, doll bludgers. And so it, it is intended to divide two big parts of the working class. Those who are in work, even though it may be precarious work, are in some ways looking over their shoulder at what they see as a competitive threat, which is a, it, it's, it's a creation of employer thinking, that, that concept. But they're the enemy. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you something for free. Um, I once uh, said something to somebody that really got them to look at me askance. I said, oh, the complacency of the people who have work. That look now that's all up in the air now, isn't it? Mm. Because what the, uh, what the escalation of the pandemic has done is push thousands upon thousands of people who would never have imagined that they'd be unemployed and therefore capable of being called a doll bludger into that very situation. And some of them are on JobKeeper, even though they are for real unemployed, technically they're not unemployed, but for real they are, many of them. They, they, they're looking at that and they're saying, oh, that could be my next port of call. I go from JobKeeper to JobSeeker. And therefore, this is, this is a huge shock 
for tens of thousands of people. And at this stage, there's going to be a huge battle for the hearts and minds. And so when Morrison comes up, out and uses that doll bludger metaphor or explores, what he's doing is testing the water to see how much can I use this? Can I go further? Can it then enable me to cut the rate back to, say, $50 a day or $350 a week in 500 instead of the current 550 how far can I go? That's what he's doing. He's trying to sort of, and, and this battle of ideas is a big deal, and it will be for at least 12 months. Uh, can you give me, a, you're working with younger a activists and obviously a broad uh, scope because I spoke to the Fair Go for Pensioners people not too long ago. Can you yeah. tell me a, a, what character the campaign is taking? Well, it's taking the character of being a, a vibrant campaign. That's the first thing. There is good, great excitement in the meetings. And, of course, we are restricted to meeting by Zoom using, using video conferencing. And yet there is this energy and, uh, and uh, creativeness. Uh, I can now uh, uh, tell your listeners that the Life campaign will be launched in, as a national campaign on July the 21st, 7.30pm. And all of the publicity for that will start rolling out tomorrow. And there's going to be some pretty exciting elements in that launch that I think a lot of people, a lot of your listeners, right across all of the 3CR programs are going to be very pleased with. I can't say what they are now because we have another general meeting by Zoom in the next couple of hours. And uh, it's not for me to preempt final decisions that are being worked out there. Uh, but it's, it is very exciting. And I, I'm just loving sort of listening to the insights, not just about what's wrong with the world, but what we can do about it that's coming from uh, different generations to mine and how much they are similar in character and similar in motivation, but also how distinctive they are, uh, how 2020 they are it's it's really quite exciting and then you have that link between people who have experienced longer term unemployment because they haven't been able to get jobs and who have experienced the extreme punitive character of how the government manages welfare benefits who have experienced that talking with people who have not yet done that who have been in paid work pretty regularly, if not regularly, for a long time, each having in common their disgust, if you like, and their complaint about how the, the management of this crisis and the crisis itself is being driven to make those who are least able to afford it pay for the recovery. So everyone shares that point of view, but from different angles. So are you saying that this has actually politicised another group of people? So if you say about a third of Australians already knew this stuff, that we're now increasing that number? Um, well, I hope that's what happens, because the campaign must work to develop a majority that thinks its way. And I think the seeds for that to happen, I think there's actually tens of thousands of people out there 
who, when they learn about what the life campaign is fighting for, will say, yeah, I agree with that. But they've got to know about it. We've got to win their hearts and minds instead of letting the poison that is in the employer messaging and in the government messaging infect their thinking about the way the the recovery might occur. But I think in terms of the politicisation amongst those who are participating, I'm feeling like I'm being politicised by others who are joining in. Tell us about that. And so it's mutual. It's mutual. Tell us about that, um, Don. Well, uh, I, I think uh, in a pretty prosaic <clears throat> way, I drift between having enormous confidence in young people, especially when I see the Friday strikes around, against climate change and so on, and then I get frustrated at the same time. So the way in which I am being politicised as a 71-year-old who's been active in lots of struggles, including helping to create the Unemployed Workers' Union back in the early 80s and all that sort of stuff, <clears throat> um, that <clears throat> uh, drift backwards and forwards between frustration and, and uh, positive um, uh, enthusiasm for what young people are doing <clears throat> is becoming far more politicised because I'm seeing... Um, the emerging leadership <coughs> that has, excuse me. Lucky we're has, COVID distant. Uh, yes, I was getting all excited, so I got a frog in my throat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's sharpening up my way of thinking about things. No, no. So, always, so you're seeing yeah. the, go back to the uh, burgeoning uh, leadership. Tell me about that. The new leadership, because well, I've it, noticed it too. Well, to be honest, I think it's still lacking in confidence. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, the confidence it, there is uh, within each organisation, there is a very strong quality of leadership to drive what each organisation does, no matter how big it is or how small it is. Uh, Learning how to <clears throat> drive, create unity between those organisations that has practical organising momentum, uh, all of these people are very capable of it, but they're still learning how to do it and they lack confidence in their own personal ability to drive it. So but, by, you... but, but by doing it, they learn how they learn their confidence as well as the skills. And do you do you think that there's a, a, a usefulness in the intergenerational nature of this? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. When you hear um, <clears throat> veterans in the fair go for pensioners exchanging views with um, young activists in various campaigns who are participating, it's quite thrilling because they're on the same wavelength. Uh, and each is trying to learn from the other. Uh, and, uh, and, and trying to learn from the other, but with a common objective of creating a movement, if we can. That's what we want to do. We want to create a movement, not an organisation that advocates here and there at the right moment or the wrong moment. Uh, but it says that advocacy has an important role. Negotiation has an important role. But the most important thing is a new type of movement. And to look at the crossovers like you know, tens of thousands of people 
are going to be unemployed and they've never contemplated that they're going to be unemployed. So the big issue there is what about re-employment for those who have been unemployed for a long time and those who are going to be newly unemployed? And that inevitably means a crossover with those who are defining the content of a Green New Deal or a democratic just transition or whatever. And any political party that doesn't pay attention to that that possible synergy between those who are fighting for living incomes and re-employment being a part of that, and because of the times we live in and the particular nature of the crisis in the 2020 associated with climate change and other environmental degradation, those three things come together. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Just to let you know that today, July the 4th, the Spirit of Eureka are running an online forum at 4pm today with Professor Clinton Fernandez, Dr Margaret Beavis and Dennis McNamara from the CFMEU. And they're asking, does Australia need independence from the USA? Go to their Facebook page for details. We'll go out this morning with uh, a song from a Victorian band, This Way Ways North. This is their new release, You Be You. to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.